Today, we turn on the television and see a baseball game. We see a batter at the plate wearing a helmet. We don't think anything of it. And if we did, we'd think, of course he's wearing a helmet. It makes perfect sense. And yet baseball existed for more than 100 years before helmets became mandatory. When we think about helmets on baseball players, we think, if he didn't have a helmet, something bad might happen. Well, a long time ago, something bad did happen. Ray Chapman died in 1920, the only recorded fatality in Major League Baseball. This event led to many obvious changes, and some unforeseen changes that have altered the game forever. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. There are three main characters in this story in 1920. Ray Chapman, shortstop for the Cleveland Indians, Carl Mays, the Yankee pitcher at the time, and baseball itself. 29-year-old Ray Chapman was planning on retiring, which would have made 1919 his final season. But his friend and teammate, Tris Speaker, convinced him to stick around for one more season. It was August, a gray, overcast day at the polo grounds in New York. Ray Chapman was having a good season, batting just over 300. He stepped up to the plate and took his stance. The man Chapman faced that day, Yankees hurler Carl Mays, was not a traditional pitcher. Mays was known as a submariner, because he released the ball low and from the side of his body. Players sometimes commented on having trouble picking up the ball from Mays. This was the case with Ray Chapman, who did not see Mays' first pitch, or at least, he did not see it well. Mays threw the ball high and inside, and it struck Chapman on the left side of his head. The only protection between Chapman's head and the ball was a thin cloth baseball cap. The sound of the ball striking his head was so loud, players standing nearby thought the ball had made contact with Chapman's bat. Almost immediately, Chapman crumbled, unconscious, to the ground. To get an idea of the difference between baseball today and baseball in 1920, when Chapman fell to the ground, the umpire turned to the stands and shouted for a doctor. There were no trainers on the teams, no medical protocols, no safety gear, except for some catcher's equipment. Two doctors eventually made their way down to the field, and over some time they were able to revive Chapman, who struggled to his feet but was unable to talk. 
An ambulance arrived and took Chapman to St. Lawrence Hospital. He died the next day. In 1920, there were no helmets of any sort, but this was just one problem that led to Chapman's death. It was a long-running custom in baseball to intimidate with the ball. This could mean a pitcher throwing at a player to push him off the plate. If a player hit a home run his first time up, the pitcher who gave up the home run might attempt to hit that same player the next time up. And then, of course, the other team's pitcher might return that favor as retribution, hitting the other team's player. Aggressive, dirty play was accepted, even encouraged. And if there was a face to this culture, it was Carl Mays, the Yankee pitcher on the mound that day. Carl Mays was notorious for doing whatever he needed to do for a win or a strikeout. An umpire said no one scuffed a ball more or resorted to trickery more than Carl Mays. In 1917, Mays led the American League in hit batsmen with 17. When Chapman died, people were outraged with Mays, but they tolerated his behavior up to this point. He was just doing what he always did. The aggression was one aspect of Mays' repertoire. The other was ball scuffing. For a long time, pitchers knew that when you rub the ball against the pavement or rub spit or tobacco juice on it, you could change the way the ball moved through the air. Another consequence of scuffing or rubbing spit on the ball was that you made the ball harder to see. It's difficult enough to follow the trajectory of a ball moving 80 to 100 miles an hour. Now imagine how much harder it would be if the ball blended in with the background. To add to this problem, teams would use one baseball for an entire game, maybe longer, so the ball would get dirtier and harder to see as the game progressed. It was not nighttime when Chapman got hit, but it was overcast and gray and a dirty ball could still be hard to pick up, especially coming from a low release point from a submarine pitcher. By 1920, spitballs had already been banned, but 16 players who depended on the spitball for their livelihood were grandfathered in, meaning they were allowed to continue to throw the spitball until they retired. Ray Chapman's death did not change this arrangement. However, Umpires began replacing balls whenever they started to become discolored, in an effort to let hitters see the ball as well as possible. But again, those spitball pitchers continued to scuff the ball, until the last of them retired in 1934. His name, I kid you not, was Burley Grimes. Still, the exchanging of old balls for new balls made a huge difference and ultimately led to the end of the dead ball era. You might be asking right now, what is the dead ball era? This is the time between 1900 and 1920, when pitchers dominated, batting averages were low, and home runs almost non-existent. For example, there was a man named John Baker, who was called John Home Run Baker. Baker led the league in home runs every year between 1911 and 1914, with, in order, 11, 10, 12, and 9 home runs. 
1918, Babe Ruth led the league with 11 home runs. A few years later, Ruth would set the record with 60. One reason cited for the huge advantage to pitchers during this period was their ability to doctor the ball by scuffing it on concrete or rubbing spit or juice into the ball, which also made it harder to see. Additionally, by never replacing the ball, it became battered and softened, meaning it wouldn't jump off the bat like a new ball. It wouldn't go as far. After Ray Chapman died, pitchers could not manipulate the ball nearly as much. Also, batters could see the ball much better. And newer balls were harder and jumped off the bat, meaning less reaction time for fielders and more home runs. Between 1900 and 1920, the most home runs in a season was 630 in 1920. Before that, it was 514. So that's 630 and 514. In 1921, that number jumped to 937, then 1,055 in 1922. That number has progressively grown each decade since. To give you some context, in 2019, there were 6,776 total home runs, compared to 514 in 1919. It is true that there are many more teams today, 30, compared to 1919 when there were only 16. But even if you cut the number in half in 2019, that's still 3,300 home runs compared to 514 in 1919 and 630 in 1920. But how did Chapman's death affect the introduction of batting helmets? By 1920, there had been a few attempts to incorporate protective headgear. Frank Mogridge patented the first headgear in 1905, described as an inflatable boxing glove worn on the head. If you go online, you can see pictures. A few years later, Roger Bresnahan, who was knocked unconscious by a pitch, created a leather helmet something like the football helmets at the time but players were reluctant to wear anything that would add weight or possibly detract from their manhood. After Ray Chapman's death, his Cleveland teammates began experimenting with head protection, but nothing much came of it until 1940, when Brooklyn Dodgers president Larry McPhail grew concerned that his players were constant targets of beanballs, meaning other teams' pitchers were intentionally throwing at them, for reasons already stated earlier. So McPhail set to work, using the jockey and horse racing as inspiration. He hired two Johns Hopkins doctors to create a prototype. What they eventually settled on was a plastic shield that you could insert into a cloth baseball cap to be as discreet as possible. Very different from helmets of today. Dodgers players began wearing the protective gear at the start of the 1941 season but other teams and players were skeptical. Until, one week into the season, Dodger Alex Camporis was hit on the head while rounding the bases. Three days later, Dodger Pete Reiser was hit in the cheekbone. Reiser still was hauled off on a stretcher and needed a few stitches, but the doctors said his protective gear might have saved him from a skull fracture. Word spread about Reiser's good fortune 
and teams began testing out their own protective gear. In 1953, Pirates general manager Branch Rickey designed a plastic helmet that was the first prototype to resemble the modern helmet. Little by little, the helmet made its way into the game, until both the American League and National League required helmets by 1956, and Major League Baseball officially required helmets by 1971. But just like the spitball rule, they allowed players who started their careers before these regulations to continue without helmets if they wished. And again, some players did wish to go without head protection. The last player to avoid the helmet was Bob Montgomery, who went helmetless until 1979. Innovation trickled in over the years, like the ear flap introduced in 1961 and required by 1983. There's the C flap that comes over the face for players recovering from facial injuries and face masks or cages like football helmets. Modern helmets have padding and ventilation. In 2007, minor league player Mike Coolbaugh was coaching first base when he was struck in the head and killed by a line drive. Since then, base coaches have been required to wear helmets. Today, the biggest, strongest, manliest man would not hesitate to wear a batting helmet or face guards or elbow guards, or shin guards. Runners now wear special gloves to protect their hands when sliding into the base. But there are still limits. In 2016, several pitchers in the major leagues tried out protective headgear. You can see photos online. The prototypes are interesting, and so far there are no takers. No matter how often we upend tradition, stereotypes, and supposed threats to masculinity, there is always more hesitation, more fear of change, more fear of threats to one's self-worth and how one is perceived by others. Right now, Little League players often wear helmets that resemble football helmets with cages covering their faces. In 10 years, this might be the new helmet of Major League Baseball. In 10 years, pitchers could wear helmets or some kind of soft matting may be placed around the bags to make sliding less dangerous. Who knows what the future will bring? That's our show. Our music, A Long Way, is by Sergi Pavkin from Pixabay. Good night.